as we come together on this New Year's Eve. What I'd like to speak about is our journey and our journey that we make in this life that is perhaps we could say a journey within no journey. The new year, somewhat like a retreat, is a time traditionally to stop and to look, to reflect upon one's life, to consider where we are coming from, where we are going. And when we look in those terms, we are essentially viewing our life in terms of a journey. And of course this has an appropriateness and a value to it. It's actually rather important for the the sense of our human life, the, that dimension of existence which is a journey in time from birth till death. And yet as we look at it we might wonder, we might ask ourselves, how do we go about this journey? How do we experience it? And as I reflected on this question earlier, I remembered the words from a uh, song some of, pa- some of you perhaps will know by Pink Floyd from the dark side of the moon called the song is Breeze and I won't uh, treat you to any of my singing which you might get to hear later in the evening and you'll understand why but the, uh, the lines in the song run or follow you run and you run to catch up with the sun but it's sinking and rushing around to come up behind you again The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're different. Shorter of breath and one day closer to death. And quite, uh, in some ways one might say, powerful lines. The sense that we sometimes have of our life of chasing it, to, to keep up with the sun, keep up with the pace of our life, with the movement of things within and around us. We can see it at times that we find ourselves trying to keep up with it and yet somehow it seems to rush away from us and yet circling around overtake us again and again. And we can feel this rush of our life, this chasing of our life at times. And in it we start to recognize that while life is just continuing we ourselves are getting older. And, and it maybe makes us stop and reflect on what this journey is. This journey that is in some ways marked by those days, by those sort of movements of this planet that is really the basic unit of time that we conceive or experience as a day. It's not something that we're measuring with clocks or with numbers or with concepts. It's rather simply clear that this cyclic event just keeps on happening. Day turns to night, night turns to day, as this planet spins upon its axis, turns again and again. And that, in that way, time shows us that its natural expression is that of a cycle, that time shows us the cycle of things. And yet, we can either choose 
to live our life in an understanding of the cycle of things. Or we can seem at times to spend it running and chasing, trying to get somewhere, chasing the sun. It's an interesting idea, interesting image, but it is to chase the sun. There's an old story, in fact, of, uh, from Aotearoa, New Zealand, where I come from, where the uh, sun was said to be rather lazy and uh, accordingly it would uh, come up just once a year, whiz across the sky, sorry, every day, whiz across the sky very quickly and then it would be sort of dark for 22, 23 hours of the day and one of the sort of the, the heroes of Maori legend, Maui, was said to have climbed up into the sky and caught the sun and told it to slow down so that in fact the people would have 12 hours of light every day on average rather than just one or two. And uh, sometimes in the middle of winter we can sort of, we can relate to that particular phenomenon of wanting the sun to slow down, there to be more light, or for there to be more space, more time in our lives. And yet, often it's not so much the movement of time, but the busyness and the fullness with which we fill it. And the, the way in which we are seeming to be trying always to get somewhere, chasing something to arrive at some distant or other location than where we are. And rather than arriving there, whether it be outwardly or equally inwardly, what we more often find is that we're simply becoming worn out and weary of the process. And, you know, this is a good time of year to notice that. The Christmas and the, the New Year excitement. And sometimes it's rather wonderful and beautiful to see it. And other times it's just you know, mind-bogglingly bizarre, exhausting, depressing even. And the, the busyness and the stress of this time, this what has become from what perhaps once was a celebration of the spiritual and the mysterious and the divine, to really something, for many it seems, to much more like an orgy of consumption. And, and that consumption and having to prepare for it, indulge in it, and recover from it. So it can be so stressful. It's intensified at this time of year for many. So it can be there throughout our lives if we do not attend to it. And all that consumption doesn't seem to lead us to a sense of satisfaction, to a place of peace and ease. And so we might, in looking at how crazy it's going to be over these days, we might think, I'll escape, I'll go to Gaia House. I'll go on a retreat where they won't be doing all that sort of thing. And then, of course, one turns up and there's a Christmas tree. And then there's vague rumours about something happening on New Year's Eve and they, you know, wondering if we're going to be wheeling in the television and pipe, pipe the celebrations on BBC One right into the hall. So, we might be wanting to escape from all of that coming here or simply more interested rather than escaping in living our life differently, finding perhaps other ways to approach what it means to be in this world. And while we might want to escape from this new year, which is also the new decade, the new century, the new, yes, millennium, you've heard all of that, while we might want to get away from it in the degree to which it's been over sort of hyped, over-indulged in. 
at the same time the ending of a year or equally the ending of a period of 1,000 years has a significance to it. Certainly, again, a year is a natural cycle of time. It's not dependent on our numbers. A thousand is a kind of random number. And the date is kind of a random date. But the fact that we choose a time to mark the cycle of this planet's journey around the around the sun. And that we we mark, or the principle of marking a point in time has a significance for us. Even if the particular date that we do it doesn't really mean much because, you know, for the Buddhists, well, we're 600 years into the third millennium already. It's kind of old hat getting into the third one, which is what we're supposedly doing here. Um, and for the, you know, for the Hindus, well, they're in their fifth or the sixth one by now, and the Chinese, I'm not sure. But, you know, it's obviously that's kind of relative. But the fact of the ending of a year, or if not the ending, the recognizing of the cycle of a year, it, it shows us, again, that cyclic nature of life, of things moving from rise to fall, from spring to summer, to autumn to winter, and back to spring again. And that there's that rise and fall, that birth and death, that coming and going that seems to be expressed in every of the each one of the myriad forms of life whether it be the human beings and our you know they say how many was it? three score years and ten in the old language you know around 70 years approximately that works out on average still pretty much what we get whether it be that sense or just a, a flickering of a dewdrop that we see in the morning in the light that is gone when the sun comes and shines upon it and just dissolves into nothing. Or the sense of the whole movement of this planet, born, scientists would have us believe, some few billion years ago and probably existing for a few billion more. Whatever time scale we relate to there, still that cycle of coming into being and passing out of existence. And we can take this this marker not just as a recognition of that movement of time but as a place to give us some sense of journey some sense of path in which we perhaps use it in what can be a useful way as a measurement or a milestone to just we just say okay this year is completed and we might just check in take that as a reminder to just check in well where am I now where is my life how far have I come in the directions that I seek to follow? Where is it that I wish to move? To what do I wish to give my energy? My life, we could say. Marking a point in time where we do this on a regular basis has a meaning and a significance for us and it can have the effect of giving us sort of the opportunity to begin again. Even if we find we've lost the thread or the theme or the direction of where we're going, we can just stop and begin again. Just as when we realize that we've lost our breath or we haven't been present, in that moment we simply begin again. There's a grace that it offers us of just allowing us to proceed. Fresh. History's not so important when we begin again. And the New Year traditionally is used in this way, you know, that good old New Year's resolution. Now it kind of becomes a a fuddy old thing that we might not have much real belief in. 
but there's a significance to that, to actually saying, okay, what do I want to attend to in this yeah, in this coming time? Even if I haven't succeeded in the past, and who knows if I'll succeed again in this year? I'm not even needing to think in terms of success, but simply directions, pointing ourselves in the way that we would wish to move, and then to see what happens as we move in that direction. And that that just gives us a little framework that at times is useful for us in our life, rather than it being just a kind of an amorphous and unformed mass of experience, which is an equally accurate way of describing it, but not always that good when you're trying to organize your calendar for the year. And the new year also is a time to remember friends. People that we have shared our hearts and our lives with, that we have followed on this journey with. And particularly marking the passage of time in this way, it reminds us of change, of impermanence and death, and how those people that we are close to, that we have been close to, are so easily and so often separated from us by either distance, by time, or by the ending of their life. And just having a time, again, to mark those people that we've lived with, that we've loved, that we've endured, whatever it might be, just remembering them. It's not in a way to sort of bring them artificially to life if they're not, or to sort of wish that they were here when they cannot be for whatever reason, but more to honour, to treasure, and to give nobility and dignity to the connections that we have had and that we do have in our lives, and to wish well for those people that we have been in touch with in this world. And, and that, that reflection, that it brings a sense of immediacy, a sense of reality or even a, a poignancy to the, the truth of change, to the truth of life's movement that can seem, <coughs> that can seem inexorable, like it just won't stop, it's relentless. And it's true. In some ways life's movement is relentless. You can, you know, there's that old uh, saying, you can sometimes get on the lapel button, you know, stop the earth, I want to get off. And we sometimes feel when it just seems to keep going and we're just saying, no, enough, enough. But we can't, we can't. We're just carried along, it seems. At least at one level, this is what's happening. And looking at our lives, if we don't really take care, we see how easily how easily they can become an endless profession of simply doing and consuming, consuming and doing, filling up our body, filling up our mind, filling our sense doors with experiences, with things, with the whole range of what can be experienced in this life. And again, there's a value and appropriateness to a certain amount of that, but spiritual teachings, Dharma teachings, speak to us again and again, point us towards another approach. 
that is not born of doing and activity and results, not born of consuming and seeking to somehow satisfy the endless interest or desire or fascination, even intoxication and addiction we can have to having more, more of this, more of that, whatever it might be. Not doing and consuming, but rather seeking to understand our life. Seeking to understand what is true, what is important, and seeking to discover what is possible for a human being. What it means to embody the full potential of this life, of this existence, which is given us as something of an incredible gift, which we cannot earn, which we are not asked to pay for, and yet which we can all too easily take for granted when we don't stop, when we don't acknowledge just how amazing it is. I mean, thinking of songs, I'm just remembering, for those of you who saw um, the Monty Python movie, The Meaning of Life, that I think starts off with this guy singing a song, eh? just remember you're revolving on a planet that's revolving around its axis at however many thousand miles per hour, and goes on to describe this incredible cosmos that we're part of. And yet so easily we forget that the mystery, the awe, the incredibleness of that, just that, so ordinary, so everyday, and yet so immense. And what are we to do with this opportunity? In looking at our life as a journey, rather than seeing it as a journey from one experience to another, seeking for more or better experiences. We can see our practice and our lives as an invitation, as an opportunity to learning, as an invitation to develop, to cultivate the, the human potential, the, the capacities of our heart and mind, which are as immense, as vast and as mysterious as this universe itself. So there's this whole element of cultivation and development which is very much a part of our practice, very much a part of the spiritual life in which we cultivate heart and mind. And in the, the language of the, the Dharma, the Buddhist teachings, there's no particular word that separates those two out and sometimes it's more useful to speak of it as the heart-mind although there's different aspects which we maybe refer to as emotions and thoughts, they are so closely interlinked when we observe them that we see perhaps they're just different aspects of, a, of an ongoing process. And equally, of course, heart-mind is not separate from body or the rest of life, but just for the ease of language. Speaking in those terms, we see that how in our practice we begin simply by making an intention to be present. Actually, practice is pretty much defined by whether you're doing that or not. Now, that doesn't mean you actually are present. You've probably cottoned on to this by now, I guess. Having the intention to be present does not equate to always being present. But having the intention to simply be conscious and aware is what makes practice practice. And what flows out of that, sometimes we're there, sometimes we're not, is just what happens. But that intention and the engaging with it brings a quality of energy, brings a quality of 
of brightness and interest into sometimes the most ordinary and everyday of situations or of moments, of experiences. That, that, and that, that, that intention, that effort and energy we, we bring to cultivate this mindfulness, this presence, this quality of, of being conscious in an open, receptive, interested way. To, to start to explore what that means, just in itself, without that we're not trying to manipulate our experience, not trying to get it in a certain way, or get it right, or better, or looking kind of holy, whatever that might look like, if we could recognize it. So probably everyone else would be able to tell, seeing us sort of starting to glow, sort of halo, whatever. But that we just, in the simplicity of being, in cultivating mindfulness, we see that, well, not every moment, but certainly it probably seems like a few more moments than when we started, that it's possible to be present. That this capacity, which so often neglected, actually starts to deepen as we give it care, as we give it support. And in that quality of presence, there can be moments, perhaps, where we just, in that exquisite simplicity of simply be, we feel a richness and a, and a fullness that is born not so much of what is happening, but of the, the, the wholehearted quality of our presence with it that can be incredibly nourishing and healing, even if it touches us just for a moment. Although we'll perhaps equally easily see ourselves reaching out to take hold of it and keep it or wanting to sort of take some notes on what it felt like so we can make sure we don't lose it, whatever it might be. But there's that that cultivation of presence that is about something simple, something immediate, something right here and now which I'll touch on a little more later. But we also find that in doing this we start to cultivate that quality of focus, of unifying of mind, that brings the energy of our consciousness, of our, the vitality of our life, kind of into focus, into, into a form in which it can be more easily harnessed or applied to that which we would wish to apply coming back again and again to our breath. Not only do we start to notice what's happening, coming, noticing sounds, noticing thoughts, noticing our body, we start to notice what's happening, but also the quality, the power almost of the mind to be able to stay steady with its experience, not become lost in unconsciousness so quickly or so for so long, we see it starts to increase. Not just sort of suddenly bang and we're sort of in deep concentration, unmoving for hours on end. It doesn't happen like that. It would be nice, but it doesn't, um, for the most part. But that we can see that there is a gradual development. And that this capacity of unifying our mind, it's like if you take a light and a torch, and you can get those torches with the adjustable focus. If you have it on the really wide focus, you can't really see so much with it. It kind of sort of gives a general glow, but you can't see much, but you bring the focus in tight to the little beam, and suddenly you can pick something out at quite some distance and see it clearly. And not only that, but as you really focus a beam of light, it becomes a laser beam. That that kind of, you know, this kind of stuff which you can hardly see, doesn't, well, I guess you can see it, because that's, that's what light is, but, um, you know, it doesn't seem pretty, particularly substantial. If you concentrate it enough, it'll cut 
through these walls. I cut through solid metal. I kind of think, wow, that's quite something. Anyone who's ever seen a laser beam, it's quite, you know, it's a brilliant thing. And our mind, it sort of also often starts off a bit kind of diffuse, but fuzzy. Nothing seems particularly clear. We're aware there's some sort of a glow of consciousness going on, but, you know, exactly what's going on in there, it's kind of like sort of in one of those pea soup fogs that we sometimes get around here or up on Dartmoor where, where I live. And, and yet, over the days of the retreat, you start to see that that clarity starts to deepen. The strength of the mind. Rather than increasing, it's, it's more that it's gathered. Rather than being dissipated and in conflict with itself half the time, it starts to operate in unity. And you now, as to the power of a concentrated mind, the Buddha once said it was one of the four unfathomables, one of the four things in this universe that cannot be understood, that cannot be, well, not so much understood, but cannot be fathomed. That the, you know, to fathom is to sort of plumb the depth of. That we can't, there's no bottom to that depth. There's no way we can comprehend it. It just keeps increasing. So there's this infinite potential in the mind as it concentrates, as it strengthens, as it deepens. So that in itself is of course just another one, not the only one or the most important one of the qualities that we cultivate. Often and rather easily we can get the view that it's all about concentration. We almost measure our practice by how concentrated we are, how long we can stay present, how quickly we come back, how focused our mind is. That's one element. It's important, but it's by no means the only significant quality that we cultivate in our practice. Equally, we're cultivating a quality of receptivity, a quality of patience that that could, just as concentration might be described as power of mind, that receptivity and patience is like power of the heart. That strength and that capacity of our, of our being to receive, even that which is difficult or challenging. That capacity to open, even though it may seem that our conditioning and our very being is at some level screaming, close down escape, run away, or fight. Fight this thing off. But that we find we learn. We can open. That the, the times when we're touched by pain in our bodies, by pain in our hearts, and there can be so many forms of these that we encounter, whether due to illness or injury of the body, or simply sitting still for what might seem to be a rather long time or being in the space that we really open ourselves into and we see, we, we find coming into the space at times the pain, the sadness, the loss, the fear, the jealousy, the anger that we may have met in our lives and we see it coming in to consciousness, becoming clear to us and at first perhaps we want it <laughs> go away, get rid of it but we start to see that we can't make it go away that struggling with it only causes more pain, more contraction, more suffering, and that we learn to actually start to open to it, to be with it. We start to trust the capacity of our heart, the power of our heart, to open, to receive, to hold, and even to begin to cradle the suffering and the pain that we feel within, in heart and body and mind and equally in being exposed to the world and the pain that we see around us, whether immediately 
nearby, someone perhaps having a difficult sitting. We can just sense something going on for them or in a group we hear of someone's circumstances or experience. Or we're aware of this wider world and the the hunger and the poverty, the exploitation and the violence and the abuse that's going on. Tragically, even as we come to what is known as a time of peace and goodwill. And just, it feels like it might be too much for us. But actually, if we just keep on coming back, seeing if we can open again and again, and even when we close down, just saying, can I open to that? Can I open to that too? That reality that right now I'm closing down, and I can't deal with all of that. We're not asked to in that moment. Simply be with what is happening. That's all we can be with. But as we do that, as we do that, just it's almost like the the heart starts to regain its its malleability, its flexibility, its ability to stretch, to move, to accommodate. It doesn't feel quite so rigid and frozen and, and therefore brittle and vulnerable. Because yes, we can be hurt, no doubt about that in this life. But ultimately, we're not harmed by the things that hurt if we learn to receive them with a, with a kindness and with a wisdom and to learn what we need to learn from them rather than seeing them as somehow a problem or a mistake that's perhaps someone else's or our own fault. And, and so that, that receptivity, that patience that we cultivate, you know, sometimes it's hard work. We wonder, why would I do this to myself? Why do all these other people do this to themselves? And yet, somehow, we can be almost surprised when something difficult arises and we just find, it's okay. Okay, it's not great fun, but it's okay. And it's speaking to us then about something that's, that's happening, that's growing within us, which we can't see, we can't measure, we can't sort of tick off the boxes to say, we've got to base two now and we're working on base three, you know, so sort of moderate acceptance that I'm working on to unconditional loving kindness for all beings in the next 45 minute setting. You know, if we think like that, we find we just get tangled in knots. And yet not to discount the very real truth that even though we can't see it, can't even comprehend it sometimes, there is an incredible amount that goes on as we simply sit and walk and be here. And that just willingness to be here, that willingness to be open, leads to heartfulness, leads to a quality of kindness, of caring, of compassion for others and ourselves. And a, a sense, perhaps, of that, that just learning to be is enough. Learning to be is enough, just to be here. Just remembering a story about, uh, you know, sometimes we... We want to know how well we're doing. We want to measure. Well, okay, so I'm cultivating some qualities. They tell me at least. And, you know, this is the path of sort of whatever, going somewhere presumably. So, you know, how do I know whether I'm getting there? How will I tell? And there was this rather lovely, I thought, story of a uh, retreat that was happening in America. A well-known teacher teaching there was asked by one of the staff, um, like the managers here, who knew someone on the retreat, said, how's, how's my friend? so-and-so, how are they doing? The teacher said, I'm doing very well. And he said, oh, what about 
Some of the friends who I know are concerned about them. I know, they're doing very well. One of the other staff overhearing this conversation says, what about, what about my sister? She's come to the first retreat ever. You know? Oh, she's doing very well too. And the staff, the second staff person says, what do you mean by doing very well? And the teacher responded, they're still here. <laughs> and, of course, sometimes one can be doing well and not still here. But just the willingness to be here, to stay here. What else is there to measure? The willingness to meet our lives. To be there for our life. This is all that our, ask, our life asks of us. And yet to give ourselves wholehearted, wholeheartedly to that is sometimes an immense and a challenging offer to make. The ultimate generosity, perhaps, is to give our life back to life and simply be there as that unfolds. And uh, the other quality I'd like to just speak a little more on, though it's been touched on over these days, um, the quality of inquiry, quality of investigation, that, that willingness just to look a little deeper, to see beyond our first take, so to speak, beyond the appearances, to not judge the book of our life by its cover. And just as we can look at our body and see the form and make some conclusion about that, and if we look deeper, feel into it, see what's going on on the inside, and perhaps come to realise that the inner experience of our body is actually somewhat more significant to our well-being and happiness than what it happens to look like on the outside. Although what we tend to focus on is the outer. In every element of our life, of our experience, that willingness to look a little more deeply is what really enables us to, to go deeper into, to go beyond the limitations that we so often feel and that we so often believe and invest in in our lives. Even though we may find them difficult, we so often are unwilling to go beyond the surface appearance because it's kind of challenging. We don't know what we'll find. We might not like it. And yet, we probably know enough already of our lives to see that living it on the surface somehow doesn't quite do it for us. That we actually yearn at some level for something more, for something deeper, for something more profound. And learning, investigation and learning, discovery, happens on many levels in practice. Quite clearly we can often see the level at which we come to understand the way that our mind works. Our own particular story, our habits, our patterns, our tendencies, our vulnerabilities, and often what we seem to see standing out is, of course, all our deficiencies and our weaknesses and our problems, so-called. Equally, if we look, we will see the qualities that are beautiful, that are sweet, and that are worthy of praise and honouring within ourselves. If we equally look for those, we will see them in our hearts, in our days, as we practice. And as we come to see both where our strengths and our weaknesses are, Rather than seeing one as a problem and the other as somehow an accident that we can't quite feel okay or quite 
acknowledge and believe in that actually there's something good about me something worthy, something beautiful even we just start to see that these kind of come out of a process of life and yet understanding them, what we could call self-knowledge enables us to, in a way, move within the current of our inner life with more grace, with more ease and also with more capacity to not be swept away by the currents by the waves the whirlpools and the storms that sometimes come. To actually get to know ourselves as we, you know, as we see ourselves unfolding, our experiences, the times when we find anger or fear or sadness arising, it's not an accident. And coming to get to know that process, just as when we see times of peace, ease or joy, just somehow blossoming in our heart. That's not an accident either. We start to see what serves, what supports, what undermines our well-being and how we can function within what we experience, what we could say we are in terms of personality, which at one level has a usefulness and a meaningfulness to it. Although clearly there's also just one aspect of who and what we truly are. So we, we see this sense of our inner life but we also look beyond it. We don't just limit our attention to our inner life. The, the dimension of practice of life, which is a dimension of cultivation and of, of growing and unfolding, that really does fit in with the metaphor of a journey, is one truly significant and important dimension of our life and of our spiritual practice but it is not the only one and equally important equally significant is the dimension that is not born of a journey the dimension that is really concerned with the discovery of freedom in life this path is a path of inner freedom, born of wisdom. And wisdom, though it may be supported through the cultivation of quality, through the development of understanding of our inner process, through the observing of what goes on, wisdom, when it comes, it seems to come and it's there. And a moment ago we just didn't see something. And in the next moment suddenly it's clear suddenly those words that we're sure we've heard before at Dharma Talks mean something. Or suddenly it just sounds like these words are coming just to me. But what I'm hearing must be just going, you know, they're talking just about my experience now. And it's like suddenly something's lit up, something's being seen clearly. And it just comes. And when it wasn't there, it just completely wasn't there. And then it's there. And it's kind of mysterious what we call understanding, what we call insight, how it sometimes just seems to dawn in the sky of our mind. And yet it's not an accident that it happens. It's not born of a process. It's not necessarily that we've got, we can sort of create a cause and effect relationship for wisdom to arise. Because if it was that simple, you know, if it involved us all doing exactly the right thing, we just give you a list of exactly the right thing to do, you'd all do it, 
it'll happen for you and we'd all go home. But obviously, that isn't what it's about. The heart of meditation teachings, of spiritual teachings, is concerned with freedom born of letting go. At one level, our practice is simply to be present. And yet at another level, our practice is none other than simply to let go. Just that. To let go. And all practice is in service of allowing us to see where we hold and to understand what we need in order, what we need to do in order to be able to let go. All our craving, our clinging, our holding on to our plans for the future, to our regrets about the past, our fears, our anxieties, our stories about who we are, who we were, who we want to be, who we will be, what other people think about us, what we think about other people, about getting what we want, about not getting, about avoiding what we don't want, all of that movement of craving and clinging and holding on causes so much pain and suffering. Life isn't always comfortable, that's for sure. But it's our grasping hold of with aversion, with craving, that creates this intense sense of suffering. And letting go is what relieves us from it. Yet that that movement is crazy. It's easy enough to say. It sounds good. We'd all probably be quite in favour of it. But we don't seem that easily to just be able to do it. Or else we'd have kept the meditation instructions a bit more brief. We'd have said, let go. You'd have done it. Again, we'd have gone home. <laughs> so what is it that seems to be there? Sometimes even when we see how much we're holding and how much it hurts, we can't let go. It's like we feel we need to. We have to hold on. Because if we don't, we're going to lose something or we're going to fail to get something or to get somewhere. Somehow we'll be left without that which we're seeking for. And this sense that's often there is of, of whatever it must be that's missing in my life. It's somehow out there. It's somehow apart from where I am, in some other place, location, or some other person who I have to become in order to be happy, in order to find peace, in order to be free. So what would it be to let go of looking, to let go of yearning, to let go of seeking for something anywhere other than where we are. You know, there's that old story about someone looking everywhere for their glasses while they're perched on their head. You know? I've done it myself with sunglasses and, you know, it's kind of hard to do that when you're wearing them, you'd think, but it's possible. And it's like some things we just get so used to. They're just so familiar to us that we stop noticing, or perhaps we never ever notice them 
at all. To stop seeking for anything. To just let go of all of that. Is to find ourselves simply where we are. And we could say in that our journey is simply the return to where we are. But clearly that's stretching language a bit to say you can go back to where you are. You're already there. Of course, our body is here. We can feel it. What else is here? Our mind, it seems, at times at least. Sometimes it's elsewhere. And yet there's this life happening right here that we're part of. This consciousness, this being. What is that that is here right now? To just rest in that quality of being. Letting go is what allows us to abide in the living presence. In the living presence. And in it we can be touched. We can feel a sense maybe that rather than it's sort of like me on a journey moving through life, simply there's a quality of stillness in that being through which life is moving. And certainly that moving is going on, as it does, we can see it. And yet it's moving through that which is still, that which is unshaken by the movement, and yet which is so close to it, so intimate with it, that in some ways it couldn't be said to be separate from it, and yet is not the same as that movement. The movement of life, when we don't grab hold of it, it doesn't have the capacity to obscure what is most immediate, what is most true. And recognizing that what is here is in fact so deeply familiar to us that we fail to notice it. Closer to us than our very thoughts, closer to us than anything we could conceive or even the fact of that conceiving that goes on. In resting in that quality of being there's no arriving, there's no return, there's no sense of leaving or coming back. It's just the moment shorn of the dimensions of time, of past and future, of coming and going. Just leaving that sense of simple presence revealed. And revealing that dimension of being, that dimension of life, which rather effortlessly holds this world. and holds each path and each being within it. Could we just sit quietly for a moment or two, please?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.